Welcome to Allison's Wonderland. I'm your host, Allison Packard. Join us as we journey through the looking glass and down the rabbit hole into the wild and wonderful world of animation and video games. Hey, do a girl a favor and please subscribe to this podcast and go on iTunes and leave us a good review. If you like the show, please help spread the word. It really helps us to get heard by more people. Thanks so much. Hey, everybody. Did you know there are only six people in the entire world that have been to every single San Diego Comic-Con since its start in 1970? What? And one of those people we have here on the show today, legendary comic book and animation writer, Mark Evanier. Hey, Mark. Hi, Allison. It's so good to have you here. Uh, you've done my panel so many times, I feel I owe you a return visit. Oh, yes, welcome. Usually we're on your large stage at San Diego Comic-Con with like 3,500 people, but today we're just in this tiny little studio. We're alone together. Yes. Except for the people running the cameras. You know, nobody needs to know about them. All right. Good. <laughs> so, Mark, tell us a little bit about how you got your start working in animation. Uh, I did this backwards. Usually people go from animation to live action if they can. I went from live action to anime. I started actually in comic books. Okay. I started yeah. writing comic books when I was 17 years old. I apprenticed with a man named Jack Kirby. And if you don't know who Jack Kirby was, you have no business watching anything on YouTube at all. And I wrote Disney comics for years. I wrote the Bugs Bunny comics. I wrote the Scooby-Doo comic books. I segued into writing for stand-up comedians. I segued into writing TV situation comedies and variety shows. And at one point, I was working for Hanna-Barbera, running their comic book division, mm -hmm. writing and editing those comic books. And I was writing live action shows for Hanna-Barbera. I didn't and even I, know they had live I, action Well, they shows. had a live action division at one point. And I kept saying to Joe Barbera, I'd like to write cartoons. And he would say to me, oh, well, you're a live action writer. Live action writers don't know how to write cartoons. And I'd say, I know more about your cartoons than anyone in this building, including you. And he, <laughs> and he you said, and Joe said, oh yeah? Okay, Wilma Flintstone's maiden name. And I said, Slag Hoople. And he went, I think that's right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so um, <laughs> anyway, I started writing cartoons. Slag Hoople, my maiden name as well. Allison Slag Hoople. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, few people know that. All right, well, secret's out now. And I started writing cartoons for a studio called Ruby Spears. Started writing ABC Weekend specials. I wrote Plastic man for them. I wrote Thunder the Barbarian. And I went around working for every cartoon studio in town, except for the ones I sued. And, uh, Next question. <laughs> yes. And then I just, you know, you work for one studio and somebody calls you up and says, hey, will you write for us? And that's how it happened. Yeah. So how old were you fresh out of high school when you started? Uh, I started writing comic books when I was 17. It was the year I graduated high school. And I graduated in June of 1969 and made my first sale the first week in July. Oh my gosh. And I've been fooling them ever since. So. <laughs> What did your parents think of your chosen career path? Well, there was a point in my life when I had to say to my father, hey, remember how you thought I was wasting my time watching all those cartoons? Hanna-Barbera just hired me as a consultant to <laughs> pick all their cartoons out for home video, and I'm doing it from memory. So, uh, you know, it paid up. My father hated his job. My father had the worst job in the world. Mm. He was the person who had to come to you and say, Ms. Packard, you haven't paid your income taxes in a few years. We have to work on a payment plan or start seizing your assets. And everybody hated him. Oh, wow. And he was a sweet man who just hated that job. But he was just part of a generation that where you took a job to feed your family. And that was what you did. And if you, if you didn't like the job, too bad. So he used to say to me, please, whatever you want to do in life, make you can do anything you want as long as it's something you love. And right? it's not illegal. And I would say, I want to be a writer. And he'd say, do you have a second choice? <laughs> because every writer he ever met was broke and owed the government a fortune. <laughs> 
But I began writing steadily and he began to be excited about that. I think when he began to see my name on TV, Mm. it made a lot of difference. It sometimes helps to have a weird last name. Evanier? Evanier, yes. Yes. Well, it's it's one of those names, you know, the immigration department went, oh, here come some Jews. Let's give them a really stupid last name. (laughs) But it's so unique. Mm -hmm. And so when he saw Evanier on the screen, you know, if if our name had been Smith, big deal. You see Smith on the screen all the time. But that made a difference. And I was making more money than he was. And that made a difference. And (laughs) he didn't have to come collecting. No, no. He didn't even have to sue me for not paying the taxes. (laughs) Uh, So I, I, it was fine. I had a very good child, good parents. And, you know, I grew up in West LA. Mm -hmm. This will impress the hell out of a lot of people. The lady next door to us played Thelma Lou on the Andy Griffith show. Okay. And through her, I started meeting actors and people like that. And, you know, she would invite me over when she had company. And literally one time I was like 10 years old. She says, oh, come over, Mark. I've got someone I want you to meet. And I walk in, I'm 10 years old. And I walk into her living room and she says, Mark, this is Betty Davis. Wow. And I knew who that was, which was even more impressive. What was going through your head at that time? I wanted her to see if she would come over next door, look at my room and say, what a dump. But <laughs> I, did, I was afraid to say that to her. So I grew up around show business. Mm-hmm. When I was about 12, they, she took me on the set of the Annie Griffith show and I played handball with Opie. Ron Howard. Oh my goodness. And met Barney Fife, Don Knotts. How old was Ron Howard at that time? He was the same age as me, I think. And the kids. You know, and, and I just had little ways of running into people in show business and, and meeting them and like that. So I just kind of gravitated towards that field. Yeah. And so would you say, I mean, nowadays nerd culture is so popular and so accessible to mainstream culture. What was it like back then in the late 60s, early 70s? Well, it was interesting because comic books, which I had more of than anyone in the world. For real? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I had tons of them. I, I, <laughs> Guinness Book of I always had more than anybody I, I knew. Uh-huh. Sold better than they do now. But these days, everybody knows who Iron Man is. Yeah. These days, everybody knows who, you know, Shang-Chi and all the characters in the movies do are. And But it was fun to feel like you were part of a little secret society that knew about all these weird comic books and cartoons <laughs> and things like that. And, you know, if you can turn your passion into your career, that's a very good thing. Yeah. And it is amazing to me how I used to think that I was qualified to win a lot of money on a game show no one would ever invent. (laughs) But I remembered... Whose comic is it anyway? That's right. (laughs) But I remembered an awful lot of stuff. You know, when I, my agent sent me out one day to meet Sid and Marty Croft, who had done all the HR Puff and Stuff show. And I knew everything about every one of their shows, which, and and they hired me. Oh, and what did they hire you to work on? First show I worked on for them was called the Croft Superstar Hours. It starred the Bay City Rollers before they were the unbelievable successes they are today. And then I worked on all their shows for about 10 years. I did all the variety specials for them and and things like that. And Marty Croft would do this to me every time we'd have a guest star. Like literally he'd say, okay, Mark, I want you to meet Bob Hope. Mark knows everything about you, Mr. Hope. He will tell you everything (laughs) you ever want. And I go, thank you. Put me me on the spot. And (laughs) I put you on the spot and make you look like a stalker. That's right. Yeah. And it was, it was frightening. (laughs) And I got to work with that generation. Mm. I was, you know, we're going to talk about cartoon voices here, obviously. Yeah. And I am very proud of the fact that I got into the field in time to work with Mel Blanc and Dawes Butler and June Foray and Don Messick and all the people whose cartoons.
tunes I grew up on. And you were very close with June. June was very close with June. I Every time I co-wrote her autobiography with her. And June was amazing. I took her to the daytime Emmys when she won her first Emmy Award. And what year was did you win her first? Because she won She was multiple. 94, oh. uh, whatever oh, year that, that was. that was the first. Yeah. I remember that. And I took her up on stage. My job was to make sure she didn't fall down all the entire ceremony. I, I had a vice grip on her arm. I had to do it like down here because June was like yeah, she's munchkin petite, size. Petite woman. And I walked her up on stage twice, once to present and once to accept. Mm. And then marched her around. And I was so proud that I got to take June to this great moment in her life where the whole TV industry is giving her standing ovations and lining up to tell her how wonderful she was. Oh, that's so amazing. Yeah. She was quite the force. And she was the last one of that breed. There are no more voice actors who were in the business that long. And I got to work with Stan Freeberg a lot too. Stan Freeberg did his first cartoon voice in 19... I don't remember the exact year, but he did his last cartoon voice job on my one of my TV shows. I directed him 70 years after he did his first job. Oh my goodness. He was like 16 when he did his first job. Wow. How many people in this world are doing the same thing 70 years later? So let me ask you then, Mark, do you have a biography, autobiography? My blog is my autobiography. Uh I just do it a day at a time. And for our viewers that might, you know, some of the younger viewers that might not be familiar, can you tell us where we can find that? It's www.newsfromme, N-E-W-S-F-R-O-M-M-E, me or my initials. Hey, editors, throw that in there. (laughs) And I am just about, by the time this show is on the internet, I will have done my 30,000 posts on that blog. What? Yes. So you can see I have a lot of spree time. <laughs> yeah, you might as well put that into a book. It makes, you know, Maybe. some cash. <laughs> so speaking of history and rich, rich culture, let's talk about Comic-Con 1970. Set the scene for us. What was that like? Well, the first Comic-Con, they had, they say they had 300 people there over the three days. I thought it was a little more than that, but not much more. It was in the basement of the U.S. Grant Hotel, which you can still stay in that. You can still stay in that basement, in fact, in San Diego. The hotel's still there. And we thought that was incredible. We were just running around going, my God, there's 300 people here. And now there's, you know, 300 people ahead of you in line to buy a diet Snapple. Wow. It's that we've seen the thing grow and grow and grow and yeah. grow. And I've just been there every year because I love the convention. My reasons for loving it have changed over the years. I miss the intimacy. I miss the chance to meet people who whose work I grew up on. Mm-hmm. They're all gone now, but it's just exciting to be there. It's exciting for the same reason it's exciting to go to Disneyland. You're surrounded by so many happy people and there's you're surrounded by so many creative of people. Everywhere you look in that convention hall, somebody has written something or made something or designed something. Someone's built a costume. Someone's made a sculpture. It's just, it's invigorating to be around so many creative people. Yeah, it is. Wow. So 70, 19, so we're saying it was 50 years, correct my math. Was it 50 years in 2020? I didn't know there'd be math in this test here. Uh, <laughs> the first, 70, one, was 19, 90, first 90, was 1970. 2000, we lost two years to, so, to COVID. Right. So we can't count those. So actually this is kind of the 50th year anniversary, um, right? 2020 like would have been 50 years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we lost 2020 and 2021. So I guess that is. Yeah. Well, I've been to all of them. So yeah. And they're exciting. They're fun. And yeah. what changes are, have you been more excited to embrace? Well, you know, one of the things that has changed is, and this is, some people will tell you this is not for the better, is it used to be about comic books mm-hmm. and comic strips, but there was always an element of science fiction and, mo- and, and a major motion pictures there at the second or third 
one, I had lunch with Frank Capra, one of the greatest directors of all time. He was there. So it's not news that there's things other than comics there, but the focus has shifted. But then the focus in the comic industry has shifted. Yeah. DC Comics and Marvel Comics are not comic book companies anymore. They're media companies, parts of conglomerates that produce movies and TV shows. And so the convention has changed along with the industry. And there's some people who rebel against it because they like things to be the way they were when they were 14 years old. But if you accept that, the world changes and you know you change with it or you mm -hmm. get left behind. It's very invigorating. And the definition of comics has expanded. Comics now are movies. Comics now are video games. Comics now are dressing up as interesting costumes I and wandering was, yeah. around. Yeah. I think that's uh, interesting. The culture has shifted. Uh, what year did you start seeing people come to Comic-Con in costume? Oh, well, I, the first couple of years there were costumes uh -huh. there, but it was like never... Batman or... Well, yeah, yeah. Somebody was always in around in a superhero suit. Uh -huh. That's very primal. What, <laughs> what is different now is the amount of effort and expense that people go to. Uh -huh. And the fact that some of those people who are wandering around in costumes get themselves jobs. They get hired for movies. They get hired for personal appearances. They get hired to design somebody else's costumes or, or replicate them. It's a place that changes lives often. Mm. And, you know, I've been doing the cartoon voice panel for a long time. We actually have gotten to the point where there are people who came to the cartoon voice panel as amateurs and beginners who wanted to get into the yes. industry. And now they're on the cartoon voice panel. Caitlin Robrock. Caitlin Robrock. That's, that's right. That's a good example. She's been on the show. She's been, she's a wonderful talent. Caitlin Robach, who, of course, is the voice of Minnie Mouse. That's right. Yes. Best known as Minnie Mouse. I did a podcast, video podcast with her, and everybody knew she was the voice of Minnie Mouse, but we weren't allowed to announce it yet. She had just gotten the part, so we're all talking around it mm -hmm. and such, because that's a major coup to land that part mm -hmm. and to inherit the dynasty the that goes with it. Those are big shoes to fill. Very much. And they have large bows on them. Large bows. Yes. <laughs> you, got, you got there before I did. Yeah. Okay. So that's a big change that has happened to Comic-Con. The fact that you get to meet the people who are in the new movie. I, as I mentioned, I apprenticed with this man, Jack Kirby. He was his assistant for a while. Tell us. He so was, Jack views. Kirby was the most creative person who ever worked in the comic book industry. He might be the most creative person who ever worked on this planet. He invented characters. He designed things. The whole shorthand of superhero comics is built largely around his visions. He was a lovely man. He was very creative. He was wonderful towards beginners and new talent. And he also had this way of predicting the future through wisdom, not through psychic powers. And at one of the earliest San Diego cons, when it was like 3,000 people, we thought that was a, as big as it could get. He said, the day is going to come when we're going to take over this city. The whole city will revolve around Comic-Con and this will be where Hollywood comes to sell the movies they made last year and to find out what they're going to make next year. That is very close to a verbatim quote quote, uttered around 1974. And we watched that. And with Jack, you know, I learned this mostly in hindsight. He'd say something like that and you go, yeah, sure, Jack. Yeah. Oh yeah, you're right. That'll happen. And then it would. He was right way more often. A visionary. Yeah. He was a, a truly a visionary. And he was a guy who people thought, oh, he's a comic book artist. No, he was a visionary. He saw ideas. He had concepts. The fact that he drew real well was a very small part of what he was. And he was the first person to signal out the Comic-Con. He was the guest of honor at the first First one. Oh, and wow. he came to everyone he could as long as his health would permit until he passed away. And there's still a void there. But if you go around that dealer's room, that big exhibit hall, you see him everywhere. Not only do you see people dressed as characters he created or co-created or you see posters, you see, and you see his style. Everything's infused with Kirby where you look, I just go there and I'm reminded of Jack. Every time I turn around, there's someone who was inspired by him. I tell people, if he wasn't your favorite comic book artist, he was probably your favorite comic book artist, favorite comic book artist. <laughs> wow. And he is one of the many people who were involved in 
making the convention grow and expand and get bigger and bigger to the point where we do take over the city. We have the biggest convention space that the city can come up with. And we take over all the other spaces around it, all the other hotels, and just try to get a reservation. <laughs> and you do some of the big panels there, Quick Draw. Yeah. And then, of course, Cartoon Voices, yes. which is usually in room A. That I uh, Cartoon Voices is sometimes people. in 6A and sometimes in 6BCF. Okay. We jumped back and forth between the two biggest rooms upstairs. Uh-huh. How did you get started um, hosting that panel? I just had the idea that people would like to meet Cartoon Voices. I was directing Cartoon Voices. I think I, I think we're now on like 20 years we've been doing it, okay. uh, roughly. And one day, I thought it'd be nice. This, the convention said you can do any kind of panel you want. So I said, I'd like to bring a bunch of cartoon voice actors down. This is when you couldn't see almost all every voice actor in the business wandering the hall. So that year, I asked my friends Rob Paulson, Maurice LaMarche, Greg Berger, and Joe Alasky, and they gave us a room that I think seated 400 people, and we turned away about 700 or 800 people. So the next year, they gave me a larger room, and we turned away 700, 800 people. And the next year, they gave me a larger room, and we're up to the point now where, where we turn away 700, 800 people in the, from the largest room they can give us. Wow. So, but it became a uh, an event, and now, I'm not claiming credit for this, but now cartoon voice actors are a major part of it. not just Comic-Con, but every convention. Yeah. You probably get a lot of offers to go to different conventions and sign pictures of yourself. Hey, I wish there was more. <laughs> yeah. Can you hear me? <laughs> and this is what is different from being a comic fan or a cartoon fan when I grew up. When I was 14, 10, 12, watching cartoons I loved, there was no way I could go meet Dawes Butler or Mel Blanc or any of those people. Now, until you worked with them. Until, until, I, was, <laughs> until I hired them. <laughs> I got to meet Dawes before I hired him. He was a lovely man. He was just, you will not find a single voice actor, whoever was around Dawes Butler, who will not punch you out if you say a bad word about him. He was the nicest, yeah. sweetest man, the most creative person. June was like that too. Generally speaking, cartoon voice actors are very nice people. There's very few exceptions. And even though they are in, on some level theoretically competitors, you'd be amazed well, you wouldn't be amazed by this, but people would be amazed by the number of times I will call a voice actor. I say, I want to book you for this show. And he'll say, listen, I got a friend who needs to make his SAG health insurance. Or it's just, I know some guy who does that kind of thing better than I do. Why don't you, why don't you call him? They don't, people don't give away on-camera parts. They will recommend each other for, and I'm sure you've been in sessions where somebody has said, hey, listen, I, Allison might do this better than, why don't you give her a shot at this part? Because she does that kind of thing better than I do. Oh, it's been a while since many of us have been in a group session. How has the pandemic been affecting you? and the way that you work? Well, I haven't directed a cartoon show that way mm -hmm. yet. I was insisting on getting everybody in the same room, which frustrated people who wanted to work remotely on the show. But I liked having everybody there. And somebody would call me up and say, hey, listen, can I be on your show? I'm in Cleveland. Could, I, could you patch me in and make you play a part in your show? And I'd say, I've got Frank Welker coming into the studio. If Frank Welker is going to be in the <laughs> studio, I'm not, not going to do you remotely. Yeah. So I haven't had the experience yet of directing a show a show that way. And the studio that I use for most of my recording sessions has gone out of business. Oh, uh, which one for, is that? Buzzies over oh, on Melrose. Buzzies. Oh, yes. Wow. And, you know, and it was a, the history there was incredible. One of the things that was, I found out, you know, when you're doing a show in a, in a recording studio, they're running backups all the time to make yeah. sure they don't lose anything. I was not aware for all the years I worked there, I probably did 25 years of shows at Buzzies, that they were running a backup on everything. Just a backup, a backup, of, and they kept them and they're giving them to me. They're on, on hard disks. And so I've got going to be getting, when I get the whole thing, I'm going to be getting seven hours of me directing Jonathan Winters oh, and six wow. hours of me directing James Earl Jones. <sighs> 
four hours of me and a thousand hours of Frank Welker making feedback sounds and doing creature <laughs> voices and stuff in between takes. Oh, you'll uh, have to share some of that. It's stunning the talent you have in there because as you know, most sessions tap 10% of what you can do. Mm. You know, you, you go into a session and you're doing two characters or three characters and you can do 80. So those other characters, those other sounds leak out in between and people or people try things different ways. You ever work with Corey Burton? I haven't. Well, we were doing a Garfield show and Corey does every single actor who was ever a great narrator. Uh -huh. And I just went and made him to go through every one of his voices. He read the copy. We had a, a bunch of lines of copy and he, I had said, okay, read this as Hans Conrad. Now read this as Paul Fries. Now read this as uh, Jackson Beck. Now read wow. this as Bill Woodson. Now read this, all these great announcers of the past. Yeah. Read this as Norman Rose because once you know all these great voice actors of history, you know, it's a shorthand language. Yeah. I, I can say to an actor, give it a little more Gary Owens and they know what I mean. Yeah. Gary had a very distinctive, Gary's a guy I worked with a lot too. Lovely man. Hey guys, this is Allison Packard. Sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to let you know that if you like the show, please, please, please remember to subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us to get heard by more people. Thanks so much. Let's talk about Garfield. Okay. You've been with Garfield for a long time. Yes. Tell about the couple different incarnations of well, the Garfield. Uh, what happened was that, that there's this thing called TVQ. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's, they do these surveys and it surveys the public and it kind of says to answer two questions. What celebrities, what stars, what characters are you most familiar with and which ones do you have a positive feeling for? Mm. And one year, the among cartoon characters, the most popular character that wasn't encumbered already on a cartoon show was Garfield, Jim Davis's character. They were doing primetime specials of Garfield. Loved Garfield. And CBS went to Jim and said, we want Garfield for Saturday morning. And Jim said, well, I don't know because I can't write, this is Jim now talking, I can't write a show every week. He had written the primetime specials and each one of those took him six or eight months. Mm -hmm. And he said, I just, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think anybody else can write Garfield the way I want it written. So no. And that of CBS Children's Programming, a lovely lady named Judy Price said, if I can find a writer you trust, will you let us do a Garfield Saturday morning show? And Jim went, okay. So Judy called me in. I had just been working on her with her for her on a show that never got in the air. It was a Michael Jackson cartoon show. We were, we were doing a, we were going to do a show. What was it called? It was called Michael's Pets. It was about <laughs> the animals that Michael had in his in his menagerie. Okay. And wow. I had to go out and meet with Michael Jackson. Oh my god. This is back when there was a Michael Jackson and his image was a little cleaner than it became <laughs> later. And the show just I thought the show wasn't working right. I didn't mm. like the show that was developing eyes. So I moonwalked off it <laughs> and I owed CBS a script. And and they I said, I'll give back the money. They said, Well, why don't you write a Garfield pilot for us instead? And I went, Okay, sure. So I wrote the Garfield pilot. They sent it to Jim Davis and he called me up and he said, Okay, let's do a show. And we did this show and it was more fun than anything I've ever worked on in my life. Oh. They let me just do whatever I that wanted. That was the 80s version? That was the 80s version called Garfield and Friends. I remember that show. My sister and I loved and that show. we did 121 half hours of it, of which I wrote 121. Oh with, my goodness. With the help of one other writer who helped me on, on some of the episodes. Wow. That's but, so prolific. And well, Jim didn't want anybody else writing it. I actually had a lot of writers who were very angry at me. They couldn't get work on the show. Mm. But that was the deal. We Jim would, re would, would renew the contract. 
contract every year if I signed to write them all. So I wrote them all mm -hmm. and they let me do whatever I wanted. The network did not have approvals. The network was so eager to have Garfield, they agreed to not see the scripts in advance. So would Jim have approval? And Jim would have approval. And, and after the first dozen or so, he stops, he says, ah, don't send it to me, Mark, just do them. So I just wrote whatever I wanted and I cast whoever I wanted. And the show was their number one show for seven years. Wow. High five. <laughs> yeah, it's the, yeah. I mean, and I'm not suggesting that a lot of writers and other producers couldn't do that. I think that their cartoon shows, like most of television, gets micromanaged. Mm. You've got to let the creative people do what they do best. And as we've learned in directing cartoon voices, if you hire the right people, you just say, okay, there's your microphone. You're playing girl number three and Fred and <laughs> just go do whatever you want. And then we'll correct you later if there's a problem. But, you know, look at the actors we had on some of those shows. I'm going to give Lorenzo Music direction on how to deliver a line. I don't think so. <laughs> you know, and we had Greg Berger and the fellow named Tom Hugie was the original John on the show. And, and I got to hire anybody I wanted. Yeah. And the trick is you hire the right people. And, you know, if we had Lorenzo Music was the voice of Garfield in the first series, I'm not going to tell Lorenzo how to deliver a line. He was, <laughs> he was brilliant. He was Lorenzo Music because he didn't need direction. I find if you give the, have to give the actors a lot of direction, you hire the wrong actors. If you've hired the wrong actors, you're not a very good director. But it's interesting because it's also about like working together to create this safe space where you can do your best work. And when you have this put, you know, this rapport with your director, then it's like you feel free to try the bits or the improv or just the delivery that makes magic that's so connected when you, you guys can all be fully focused on delivering the message in the moment. You know, it's how do we get there? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's a very wonderful process. Sometimes I will hear an actor read a line and it's nothing like what I heard in my head when I wrote it. And I'll go, hey, that's better. That's interesting. And a couple of times I've stopped sessions and said, hold on, let me rewrite. You had what you did. I think I want to do more. We had a uh, session one time. Stan Freeberg was playing a character and he decided to give the character a little bit of a lisp, a tiny little, very soft, like Sylvester the cat has, a little tiny lisp. And it was really good. So I stopped the session. I told everybody to go out and have coffee. And I rewrote the rest of the script and put S's in all his speeches to oh, make, uh, and take advantage of it. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and Stan Freeberg was a boyhood hero of mine. Oh. If anybody watching this doesn't know who he is, if you're interested in cartoon voices, you should know who Stan Freeberg was. He was a brilliant, brilliant man. And probably now with YouTube, people can do research. Yeah. Stan Freeberg basically invented the funny commercial. And he was a voice guy for Disney. And he was he was the, he was the beaver and Lady and the Tramp. Mm -hmm. um, he was in, he did the voice of Mickey Mouse a couple of times brief, briefly. And he was the other guy in a lot of the Warner Brothers cartoons besides Mel Blanc. Mel got the sole credit. But, you know, when they had the two gophers, one of them was Mel and one of them was Stan. Mm -hmm. When you had the two mice, Hubie and Birdie, one of them was Mel and one of them was Stan. And an amazing, talented man. There's enormous talent in the business. In fact, right now in the cartoon business, there's probably too much. There's probably too many good people for the number of job openings there are. And there are more job openings than there ever were. Yeah. But people They're pop up to fill them. Yeah. <laughs> so I know I had read that Gru the Wanderer is currently being developed. And I was wondering, I don't know where you're at in the process, if you can share a little bit about how you got involved with the project. And Well, I don't know where we are in the process either. Gru is a comic book that I've been doing for 40 years with my best friend, who's a man named Sergio Aragonas, who has been drawing. Is he from LA? He is from, he's from Spain and Mexico. He grew born in Spain, grew up in Mexico. And he came to America in the 60s and began drawing for Mad Magazine. And oh. he drew for Mad until, well, he's still drawing for Mad. Mad is mostly reprint these days, but whatever is new in the magazine is his little drawings in the margins that he does. And he's an amazing. I know I'm gushing about all these people, but they're highly gushable. <laughs> uh, and Sergio's my best buddy. 
and he came up with the idea for this comic book about an inept barbarian who usually slays the, the not only slays the dragon, but the maiden he's there to rescue, <laughs> the stupidest barbarian on the planet. Uh-huh. And we've now been doing it for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And we've made a deal with a company that is developing it as a cartoon series. And I'm not being evasive when I tell you I'm not sure where we are in the process right yeah. now. It, it's off, it's on, it's off. We're yeah. going to do this, we're going to do that. It's, you know, you learn in this business. I'll tell you something interesting, which is that one of the reasons I like writing comic books is that you go to a publisher, you say, hey, this is a book I want to do. And they go, okay, fine, get the, get the first issue in. And then you and an artist or two, and there's three people involved, and you just do the comic and it comes out mm-hmm. more or less the way you want. You do a TV show and you're letting yourself seven months of meetings and, and <laughs> conference calls, and now they're on Zoom. So you're, you're sitting there in your underwear from the waist down and... <laughs> discussing, you know, pitching this here and foreign syndication. And it's a much more complicated process. And there are upsides to that too. I I used to love writing variety shows because you're working with real people. I'd write a song and human beings would actually sing it, you know. But there's something great about something that's produced by two people or three people Mm. also. So there's a simplicity in doing the comic book that is not present in doing the cartoon show because the cartoon show may cost millions of dollars to make. It doesn't cost millions of dollars to do one comic book. Yeah. Lower barrier to entry. Yeah. Well, Mark, I feel like we could chat all day, but it's time for us to wrap it up. I just was wondering, so San Diego Comic-Con, we'll see you. Can you announce anything about what panels you'll be hosting? Uh, at the moment, the plan is to go back to doing the two cartoon voice panels on Saturday and Sunday. I'm going to see if I can get some of the best people. I'm going to see if I can get this Allison Packard lady to be on one of them, but hey, I, she's kind of she's kind of busy. <laughs> and I'm going to do the quick draw game with Sergio, what we do. I'm going to do my panel, my annual tribute to Jack Kirby panel, which we do because otherwise I just spend the whole convention talking about Jack anyway. <laughs> and we're going to do... Maybe his ghost will appear. Uh, I'm going to do a panel about a, a book I'm involved with editing. I'm supervising the reprints, what I think was the greatest newspaper strip ever done, which was Pogo by a man named Walt Kelly. Mm-hmm. It was a wonderful comic strip. I think it was the best thing ever in the mm. syndication strip. And we're reprinting all of them now. And we're doing a panel about that. And I don't know what else I'm going to do. I'll just... Yeah. I do the panels that aren't really to try to sell you anything. Mm. Uh, you know, a lot of the panels at San Diego have turned into infomercials or this new movie or this new series or whatever. And I like the cartoon voice panels because we're not selling a show. We're selling, look at these brilliantly talented people. We're just entertaining. We're right? just entertaining. We're just... Well, you know, it's it's amazing to watch the audience when they hear, I do this quick draw panel where we have these super fast cartoonists, including Sergio and my buddy Scott Shaw drawing mm-hmm. for people. And I'm wandering around the audience getting suggestions what they should draw. And I look at people's faces. And I see this amazement. They go like, I can't believe I just saw someone draw that in five seconds. And then we do the cartoon voice panel and I'm just looking at the audience. I'm on stage for that, but they go, I don't, how did that person just sound like a donkey? How did that person just sound like, like Meryl Streep? How did, you know, the, 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 it's the same look. And it's the same look I see. I'm a member of the Magic Castle and I go there and I see magicians making people levitate and sawing them in half. And it's the same look. It's these people going, I didn't just see that. Yeah. So you, know, you, you, you bring wonderment to people Wonder, and yeah. you, because these, there's something, these things all have in common, the fast cartoonists, the brilliant voice actors, the amazing magicians. They're just doing things that you would not think a human being could do. It would be really fun to combine them, to have like voice actors at the quick draw. And then after he draws them, then they have to provide. We, we, we should, we, we, we try that a little bit. Yeah, we should do more of that. <laughs> we, yeah. Maybe you come down and we'll, we'll, we'll design a character in front of everybody and you can give her a voice. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. It sounds so fun. Yeah. Um, no, it's, th- this is the reason I love comedy. 
Comic-Con. It is this festival of creativity and talent everywhere you look. And, you know, there's so much that I can't do that I'm not able to do. I've occasionally cast myself in a, in a voice job and a, a thing because, and, 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 and that's, and I'm pretty terrible at it. I'm not, <laughs> and I think, and I think, why did I do that? Cause you know, you got a good voice. Greg Berger is standing over there. Neil Ross is, is out in the waiting room. Why am I doing this voice? Jim Davis made me do it a couple of times. But I'm a really fan of people who can do amazing, of magicians and cartoonists mm -hmm. and such. And it's nice to be able to present them to the world and, yeah. and show them off. Reveal what's behind the curtain of, of the magic, as it well, were. Well, you know, it's, we live for wonderment. That's the, that's the common thread in everything at Comic-Con. 100%. Yes. So. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your rich history and all that you're wise years and perspective. I don't think there's anyone else that could grace us with such insight and wisdom. So thank you except, so much. Except whoever you have on this show next week or the week after <laughs> or the week after. Or those other five guys That's that were at right. the first Comic-Con. Yeah, yeah. I want to meet them this year. <laughs> Well, thank you, Mark. Thank you for asking, We'll see you babe. next time. Guys, if you like what you saw, please go ahead and click the subscribe button because we're doing these every week and we, I want to know what other guests you want to hear. So drop them in the comments and we'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Allison's Wonderland, where we explore the wild and wonderful world of animation and video games. Please remember to subscribe and leave us a review. For more episodes of Allison's Wonderland, please visit us at www.allisonpacker.com. See you next week.